15. If you're new here, we'd love to connect with you. We have these connection cards that are in the uh, connection table just on the way out there. If you want to grab one of those before you eat pizza and fill it out and uh, hand it to me or hand it to somebody at the table there, um, we'll follow up with an email and get you on our list and also send you a free gift in the mail. So uh, we're so thankful to have all of you here. We are doing a series of teaching called Making Waves. It's about how to hear God's voice. And before I got into sort of the nuts and bolts about how to hear God in a practical sense, because there's some practical tips that we can learn to learn how to hear His voice more clearly, I found myself feeling this need to talk about uh, our freedom from the law and different things, because what happens is that we all hear God. That's the first blank in your notes. Uh, If you didn't get notes on the way in, they're they're on the way out here. We do these fill-in-the-blank notes here. But uh, number one is we all hear God through our theology. And our theology is just the sum of our thoughts about God or our ways of thinking about God. Our theology is like a filter through which we hear God's voice. And so having good theology empowers us to hear God well, but having theology that is uh, not rooted in the Scripture or or based on um, traditions and, and things can make it difficult for us to hear what our uh, Father is saying. Uh, Everybody has a theology, every single one of us. Even people that believe in a different God or even atheists have a theology. An atheist's theology is there isn't a God, right? That's not a very good theology, but it's it's the sum total of their thoughts about God. Everyone has a theology, and our theologies don't exist in a vacuum. That means that they don't, uh, aren't shaped by just nothingness. They're shaped by our experiences in the past. They're shaped by teachings that we've heard. They're shaped by our own interactions with God. And they're shaped by experiences, good and bad, that happen to us throughout life with our father, with our mother, with our kids. How many of you would be so honest as to admit that um, you had to unlearn some things about God that maybe your parents taught you or that maybe your friends taught you. Sure, we all have that. And this really is the message that Jesus came and preached. He said in Mark 1.15, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent you and believe the gospel. Now, when I was growing up, I always thought the word repent primarily meant to feel really, really bad about myself. Now, certainly, uh, if we do something wrong, there's, there's, it's okay that we should feel guilty. Not, not feeling bad about sin is, is uh, you know, being a psychopath, okay? <laughs> not, not, not having a conscience is not good, <laughs> okay? However, <laughs> however, the word repeat, repent, the Greek word is uh, metanoeo or something like that. I'm not wonderful at pronouncing it, but it means literally to change your mind to change how you're thinking. When Jesus said, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, believe the gospel, he wasn't so much saying, feel really bad about yourself. He was saying, you guys were thinking one way about God. I need you to change the way you're thinking and believe the gospel. What's the gospel? Well, we did a whole series about this uh, that's on our website called What is the Gospel that you can look it up. But basically the gospel is the good news of what Jesus did and the fact that he enacted this new covenant of grace, which means you're already forgiven, you're loved, and God's for you and lives in you. 
And that has nothing to do with your performance or whether you do good or do bad. Thank God. So Jesus says, there's lots of wrong ways that you guys have been thinking about God. I need you to change the way that you're thinking. Everybody with me there? Why does he say that? Because they've been under this thing called the Mosaic Law for about 1,400 years. And the law has shaped the way that they think about God. I'll give you a simple example. One day, Jesus is preaching, and there's a man in the crowd that has a withered hand. And the Pharisees are all looking at Jesus, and they're thinking, is Jesus going to heal on the Sabbath day? Because what they've been taught by the law is that you don't do any kind of work on the Sabbath. Now, they took it to an extreme that God never meant it. But what, what their thinking was, was if God, if, if this person Jesus is from God, there's no way that he would heal on the Sabbath day. Well, Jesus <laughs> violently confronts that bad way of thinking. And he pulls the guy with the withered hand down in front. And then he very confrontationally says to the Pharisees, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath or to do evil? Is it lawful to heal or to destroy? And then those of you that know your Bible, what does he say to the man? Stretch, stretch forth your hand. He healed the man. Now, what was he doing? He's saying, you guys had a picture of God that said God could only love somebody or save somebody on certain days of the week. And Jesus is saying, that's a terrible way of thinking about God. Every day is a day of salvation. Every day is a day that God loves you. Every day is a day that God wants you to be healed and well and to have good things happen for you. So he, he caused them to repent, to change the way that they, they thought about God. Now, whether we realize it or not, many people, Christian and even non-Christian people, have ideas about God or theologies that have been shaped by the law. And we talked about that last week, that the law actually veils God, and it makes it difficult to see Him accurately. Which means that many people have sort of inaccurate pictures of God because they're based on stuff that they saw in the Old Testament. And, uh, you know, sometimes they're based on stuff that's not even in Scripture. One time I was in a meeting, and a man told this story. And I, I love this guy. is a powerful, powerful minister, and he gets a lot of people free from sexual addiction and things, and so I'm not criticizing him at all. I'm sure he was just repeating something that he'd heard from another minister. But he told this story. He was talking about how the Lord wants us to stay close to him. How many of you believe the Lord wants you to stay close to you? Sure. That's scriptural, right? So he told this story about uh, shepherds back in the day. And he said that shepherds back in the day, what they would do if a, if a lamb went astray is they would go find the lamb and they would break one of its legs. And then they would put the lamb on the, on the, the shoulders and they would carry the lamb back to the flock. And then after it got better, it would never again stray from the flock. Okay. All right. And so like ministers do, he, he told this story. And uh, if you just internalize that and think, well, that must be must be right, then what you're doing is you're, you're building a theology on what is essentially a story, which is not actually rooted in any kind of New Testament truth. 
Okay, but, but you're building this theology, this picture of God, and, and what people begin to think is, okay, that must be what Jesus is like. So if I don't follow God closely, uh, what's that mean? Well, I might, you know, he might make my car break down. He might make my, I've had people tell me, well, I felt like God caused my, my uh, boyfriend to leave me, or God uh, broke up my relationship, or God, um, you know, made me sick, and God did all these sorts of things uh, to try to keep me close to him. Well, what, what is that? That's, that's building these ideas and thoughts about God essentially on stories like, like that one. Yeah, okay. And that's not really rooted in any kind of New Testament truth. I'm not going to talk about those concepts today. I just want you to see how these things happen. People tell stories like this, and then we sort of build theologies on top of them. We have all kinds of thoughts about God. And here's the really scary part. You know that story about the, the lamb with his leg being broken? That's not true. Okay, the shepherds never did that. In fact, if you're a shepherd and you broke your, your lamb's leg, that's probably not a very good strategy long term. To, to The whole point of being a shepherd, right, is you want to protect yes. the sheep. Not, 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 there's things outside, outside of the flock that are trying to hurt the sheep. I'm trying to protect the sheep, not hurt the sheep. Okay, so if you research that, there's never any indication that that's a true story. And yet pastors through the years have told that over and over again. And I'm not mad at anybody. I'm just letting you know, a lot of our thoughts about God are based on fiction. And, and we've, we've got to let go, like the song was saying, of that God that we sort of invented uh, based on, you know, stories and, and things like this. Now, they aren't all just based on stories like that. Sometimes they're based on the law. And uh, letter A is when it says, When we have thoughts about God that are colored by the Mosaic law, we call that legalism. L-E-G-A-L-I-S-M. And if we're to hear God accurately, we really need to get rid of that kind of law-based thinking. Now, I'm not going to do a whole thing about legalism today, but on the back of your notes, how many remember Jeff Foxworthy when he was... (laughs) really popular, right? He always did this thing, you might be a redneck if. I think that was probably ministered more to people where I grew up than, than maybe here. But uh, anyway, uh, you know, he would always say, if, if the shoe fits, wear it or whatever. Um, so on the back of this, I, I made this list of things that if, if you're experiencing these things, you might be in legalism. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean that you are, and it's not a list of things to look at and feel like, oh, the pastor's criticizing me. No, no. Um, the problem with, with legalism is that nobody actually believes they're in it. Right? If I say to you, how many of you are Pharisees? Okay, no, no hand's going to go up, right? Because we know, we've read the Bible, the Pharisees are the bad guys, right? Nobody wants to be a Pharisee. Okay, and so I don't want to be one. And, and the problem is that we can sort of unintentionally become one and, and slip back into legalism and religion without being aware of it. So I've made this, this thing on the back that, that kind of helps you identify maybe some, some areas where you might be in legalism. Again, it's not to condemn you or anything like that. In fact, the first one is you might be in legalism if you feel condemned and guilty all the time. Because Romans 8.1 says that there is no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. So I gave you a scripture on the back half of that that teaches an opposite truth to whatever the, the legalism is. Um, some of them might require some explanation from me, but, but anyway, it would set you on the right path. I'll highlight a couple of them. You might be in legalism 
Um, if you feel, letter E, if you feel like God is more likely to answer a holy or a special person's prayers than your own. How many of you ever felt that way? That it's like, oh, it's more likely that God, uh, you know, Andrew Womack, he's a real holy guy. He's never even said a cuss word. God will probably answer his prayers more than, than mine. If you think that, you might be in legalism. Um, letter I, if God seems more like a taskmaster to you or a judge than a loving father, you might be in legalism. And that's why Jesus tells the story of the prodigal son. That's probably an inaccurate title. It's more about the story of a loving father. Um, but anyway, uh, letter uh, um, M, do you feel this pressing sense of stress and unease that you aren't doing enough, being enough, or living up to some invisible standard? You might be in legalism. Not necessarily, but you might be. Um, and then letter O, you believe that through fasting, praying, and harassing God, essentially, <laughs> and again, I'm not picking on anybody, but, but if your view of God is that He's in heaven and doesn't really want to help you very much, but if you get enough people together to harass Him for you, He might get fed up and, and do something. That's a, that's a legalistic picture of God that's, that's rooted in the law. Anyway, you can peruse that in your own time. If you, if you have questions, certainly email me. Back on the front, I wanted to talk today about the fact that even our strategies for bringing change into people's lives and into cities' lives uh, and ultimately nations, even that has been kind of shaped and influenced uh, by the law. In the Old Testament, if there was a problem, they really had about one strategy for dealing with problems in the Old Testament. Are you ready for what that strategy is? You would find the person or the group of people that was the problem, and then you would kill them. That was pretty much it. Great example of this is is when Joshua takes over from Moses. Uh, They go up, and they're supposed to fight this city called Ai, just letter A-I. And they go up there, and they lose, which isn't supposed to happen. God promised them that they were in covenant with him, and if they kept the covenant, that they would always win their battles, and they lose, which indicates to them somebody must have broken the law. Somebody must have broken the covenant. So what did they do? Well, they went through this ritual, and they figured out that there was this guy, Achan, and he broke the law, and it was his fault. He stole some of the stuff that that was supposed to go to God, and he hid it. And you know what they did? (laughs) They got Achan and all of his family, and they killed him. And then they went back up to Ai, and they won. Now, why did that happen? Because they were involved in this covenant with God, this contractual agreement that said, if you do all these things, you'll be blessed. If you don't do all of them, you'll be cursed. Now imagine if I took that mindset into the New Testament. And let's say, let's say we were praying for, for Jeremiah down here, and we didn't see the breakthrough that we wanted. And so I started to look around. And I said, who in here has sinned? Derek, is it you? Was it... I need you to meet me out back of the church. It'll be fine, I promise. Eat a lot of pizza beforehand. No. We all think that's silly, right? If I were to, if I were to do that, then, then I'd be in jail. <laughs> Nevertheless, we, we often find ourselves trying to use uh, Old Testament strategies in this New Testament we call grace. We don't kill people uh, in the New Testament for sinning. But we surely criticize and shame them. Yes, yes. Good job, Pastor. 
Is that a New Testament strategy for bringing breakthrough into no. people's lives? No. no, it's not. No, it's not. No. James and John, they, they kind of liked this idea of just killing the people that were the problem. And one time they were wandering by Samaria, and Samaria rejected Jesus at this time, and they said, we don't want you to come through here, Jesus, uh, because he was going to go to Jerusalem, and they're essentially racist. They didn't, they didn't want uh, Jesus to go minister to the Jews because they hated the Jews. How many of you know racism's a problem? Now, there's a whole city of racists. James and John say, this city's a problem. Jesus, can we please burn this city to the ground? That's what they say. Can we call fire down from heaven and, and burn them up? Elijah did it. Can't we do it? And Jesus says, hey, pump the brakes. You don't know what spirit you're of. The Son of Man came not to destroy men's lives, but to save them. What's he doing? He's saying, listen, you've had this picture of God as an angry, wrathful, vengeful God that wants to destroy people's lives. What I'm telling you is, that's an inaccurate picture. You've got to repent. You've got to shift the way that you think and believe the good news that God loves you and is for you and isn't there trying to destroy your lives. It's, It's really that simple. That's what he's talking about. Well, another... New Test, or Old Testament strategy that a lot of times gets, gets used. I, I want to show you this. I want to show you how we sometimes misapply Old Testament concepts. And I, please understand, when I do this in just a second, I am not being critical of anybody or anybody's ministry. Um, I'm going to use a scripture that probably many of you have heard. And it might be, I don't know, it might be your favorite scripture. And understand that a lot of awesome things have been done in the name of, of this scripture. And so it's not my desire. We're not dishonoring any of that. We're not saying any of that was invalid. Awesome thing. God's not in heaven waiting, us for, waiting for us to have perfect theology to, to do stuff. Right? He's not waiting for you to pray the perfect prayer and, and all that kind of stuff. And we're not going to be the church that runs around and tells everybody why they're, they're wrong in the way they apply scripture. Okay, but for, for you guys, I want you to understand um, what this is actually talking about so we can do the New Testament yes. model. Yes. Yes. Okay, now the Old New Testament model includes this, but it's, it's uh, not quite the same. How many of you want to see individual cities and nations transformed by the power of God? Everybody, Everybody wants to see that, right? How do we do that? If I were to ask uh, just a random sampling of, of Christians um, across the globe... How do we do that? Uh, Many Christians would point to this one particular scripture. And again, I am not criticizing them for pointing to this. I think it's a great scripture. But let's just understand what it it means in context. The scripture, and you're blank there, is 2 Chronicles 7.14. 2 Chronicles 7.14 says this, If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sins and heal their land. And how many of you know that's a good promise? It's a great scripture. How many of you would like to see the land healed? Now, when, when we say that, most of the time when we say we'd like to see the land healed, we're talking about seeing uh, change in people's lives. And we think about all the ills and negative things that exist in society, like 
abortion and injustice and, and racism like we talked about and um, people that don't know Jesus. We want them to see, we want them to come to Jesus and all these kinds of, kinds of things. Uh, well, there's, there's a couple um, problems with using this scripture as, as the only means of doing that. And um, I, I want to show you, if you turn back to Deuteronomy 28, remember that the Mosaic law is the context for everything that happens after that until Jesus comes. So God isn't behaving in a bunch of random ways. He's behaving according to what He said He would do based on the covenant that He made. So to understand what happens later in the Old Testament, I've got to understand the agreement that the nation of Israel entered into with with God. We talked about that last week. But Deuteronomy 28, uh, verse... 15 says this, But it shall come to pass, if you will not listen to the voice of the Lord your God, to observe, to do all the commandments and statutes that I command you, then all these curses are going to come upon you. So if they didn't do all the law, there's going to be some very specific curses that come on them. Everybody with me? Now, if you read the rest of this, I'm not going to take the time to do it. He points out a bunch of stuff that will happen, but one of them is famine, Another is pestilence, and another is locusts. So it's not going to rain, you're going to have pests, you're going to have locusts. So if the nation of Israel has no rain, pests, locusts, why is it? Is it because God woke up on the wrong side of the bed? No, it's because, it's because they violated the covenant, right? And so God is acting in a, in a way that is totally consistent with what He said that He would do. All right, turn back to 2 Chronicles 7. 2 Chronicles 7 takes place under the law, and it takes place during the reign of Solomon. And it's really interesting because Solomon builds this temple, and then God appears to him, and he uh, makes him this promise, which is a really powerful promise in the context. Go back to 2 Chronicles 7, verse 12. It says, And the Lord appeared unto Solomon by night and said to him, I have heard of your prayer and have chosen this place to myself for a house of prayer and sacrifice. Excuse me, a house of sacrifice. Notice verse 13. If I shut up the heaven that there be no rain, or if I command the locusts to devour the land, or if I send pestilence among my people, then if my people, which are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sins and heal their land. Now, in that context, what it originally meant to the nation of Israel was what? If you sin and break the covenant, and there's famine and locusts and all this stuff, then what do you do? You pray, turn from your wicked ways, and then what will happen? God will hear you, and God will do what? He'll heal the land. What does heal the land mean? Take away the locust, make it rain, take away the pests. Everybody see that? That's, that's what it meant originally to the nation of Israel. It's a terrific promise, right? right. Under, the content, under the covenant they were under, it's, it's amazing, because 
There's this punishment that's coming from God, and God's saying, here's a way you can fix it. That's wonderful. The problem is, when we, if we take that concept into the New Testament, we've got, we've got several problems with that. And, and one of them is, in number six, that in the New Covenant, God has declared that He's not punishing us or even angry with us. So to invoke, letter A, to invoke 2 Chronicles 7.14, it it basically implies that the problems we face as a nation are the results of God's judgment. So I I just want to say clearly to you, I'm not mad at anybody, I just want you to understand this. Abortion and injustice and inequality and all these societal ills that that we don't like, are they punishments from God? No. So is, is just me repenting and praying, is, is me doing 2 Chronicles 7.14 going to fix it? No, because no, it's not God's fault. Right, right. And now he says, letter B, things like abortion, sex trafficking, all these things we don't like, they exist because men's hearts are evil and have chosen them. Yes. Chosen is the blank. It's not God's fault that we're doing all this crazy stuff. God abhors child sacrifice. He's not making us have abortion because He's mad at us. Now, most people don't think that way. I don't think anybody thinks that way. But what you've got to understand, if, if we're invoking 2 Chronicles 7.14, then we're saying God's our problem, essentially. All right, now... What's the, what's the New Testament counterpoint to this? How do you see nations and cities and just individuals' lives? How many of you would like to just see your neighbor's life changed? Or your best friend? Or something like that, right? Yes. Well, what do, you, what do you do? Do you pray and fast? Sure you do. Do you repent? Sure you do. We change the way we think about God. All those things position us to help our, our, those around us. However, that's not enough. What's Mark 16 say to do? Mark 16, 15 says, here's the New Testament strategy. Go you into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believes and is baptized shall be saved. He that does not believe shall be damned. And these signs shall follow them that believe. In my name they'll cast out devils, they'll speak with new tongues, they'll take up serpents. And if they drink any deadly thing, it will not hurt them at all. They'll lay hands on the sick and they'll recover." In my view, there's a pretty clear two-point strategy to changing things in the New Testament. Number one, it's to preach the gospel. It's to openly and clearly declare what Jesus did for us on the cross. Make it abundantly clear. Jesus did more than just (laughs) turn turn the page in your Bible. He, He totally changed forever how God deals with humanity. He enacted a new covenant of grace and mercy and peace where all the blessings and all the promises of God are already yours and God lives forever eternally on the inside of you and you are a priest and and you can uh, fellowship with God anytime you want to. And so you've got to preach the gospel and then you've got to to demonstrate, you've got to combine that with a demonstration of the Spirit, meaning we've got to prove that what we're saying is true by the supernatural. And Paul actually did this in Acts 19. I won't uh, go there, but, but he goes to Ephesus and he starts to teach. 
and he gets a few people filled with the Holy Spirit, and some cool stuff starts to happen, and then he's teaching in the synagogue, and then they don't like him very much, so they kick him out. And so he goes to this school of Tyrannus, and he's just there day after day, year after year, for about three years. It takes some time, and he's just faithful, preaching the gospel, sharing the good news, explaining what Jesus did, and then the Bible talks about how there are all these miracles that happen through his ministry, and that even, even such that uh, cloths were taken from his uh, body and just laid on people, and they were healed instantly. And so the preaching of the gospel combined with the demonstration of the Spirit, the Bible says that the entire continent of Asia heard the gospel because of what Paul did just in that school of, of Tyrannus. And it says that Ephesus was turned upside down. It was a, it was a marvelous revival, one of the best ones that happened in the, in the city. So do we, do we pray and fast to position ourselves to preach the gospel? Sure we do, but we've got to preach it. Right? And we've got to demonstrate that what God has, yes. has said is true yes. by praying for the sick and doing all these yes. kinds of things. So we've got two major commitments here at this church. And uh, one is that we want to clearly explain over and over again what Jesus did for us. And then we want to support that by uh, the power of the Spirit, by praying for the sick and by teaching you about the gifts of the Spirit and all those types of things. And so we like to do all those things um, all the time. And we believe that over the years, that's going to bring tremendous breakthrough uh, into your life and into the life of our city and ultimately into the life of the nation Um, because that is the New Testament strategy for bringing revival. And um, so we've we've got to change the way that we think. He said, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He's saying, really, more is available than you'd previously thought possible. More is available. There's more breakthrough available. There's more love. There's more joy available. But what does it require of us? Not that we, not that we labor or have a whole bunch of self-effort and works and legalisms. Rather, it's just, can you change the way you think? Because if you can, anything can be possible. You can hear the voice of God clearly. Uh, I've, I've got this commitment to you. What I want to do is help you change your mind, help you change the way that you think about the Scripture. And so that's why we do this. I don't do it because I'm trying to correct anybody. I'm doing it because I'm trying to help you see God clearly. Because, because God, Molly and I were talking, actually Sarah and I were talking the other day, and we were just talking about all this, all our history with God, and we've, we've been everything under the sun. Uh, <laughs> every denomination, <laughs> you know, everything. And, and we're just continually in this place of repentance, of changing our minds about God. And it's always because he's better than we previously thought he was. I thought he was good, and then I realized he was even better. And then I realized he was even better. And then I realized he was even better than that. Let's all stand up. If my prayer team could come down. There are these four living creatures in Revelation 4 that revolve perpetually around the throne of God. And they're always gazing in at God. And they cry out, Holy, holy, holy. Day and night, holy, holy, holy. They fall down and they worship and they say, Holy, holy, holy. Holy in that context doesn't mean sinless. 
Here's why. Are the angels sinless? Sure. So is it stunning for them that God is sinless? Am I stunned by the fact that Derek is male? Because I'm a man. Right? So it's not stunning for me that other people are men. It's not stunning for the angels that God is sinless because they're sinless. When they cry out holy, they're saying God is so much infinitely greater and better than anything we've ever imagined up to this point, and they've spent all eternity beholding His goodness. And they're saying, we still don't get it. We've still got to soak in more of just how good God is. I'm going to pray for all of you. If you need personal prayer, if you need healing in your body, if you need to receive the Holy Spirit, if you need anything, I've got awesome prayer ministers down here that would love to join hands and agree with you. Please remember there's pizza right out there. Um, They should be bringing it in. Hopefully they didn't uh, call me just now and take it back to the place. But anyway, I'm sure it's fine. So anyway, I'm going to pray for everybody. And then uh, when I say amen, the service is dismissed. But if you need personal prayer, come on down.